From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. It's a great time to be a horror fan. There has never been such a wide diversity of creative voices behind the camera. Every year, there are more and more filmmakers of varied gender and ethnicity, drawing upon unique life experience and varied points of view. But it's not always been that way. As recently as the 1980s, you could practically count on one hand the successful female directors of horror films. The genre has long been run by the white male point of view, and I've actually been in meetings with studio executives, thankfully in the darkening past, who actually said to me that women can't make horror movies. They have been proven wrong time and time again, and now more than ever. But back in the 80s, when I was getting my start, few female directors were given the opportunities, particularly in our genre. But the few were notable. Amy Holden Jones did Slumber Party Massacre for Roger Corman. Catherine Bigelow, who later won an Oscar for The Hurt Locker, created the masterful vampire saga Near Dark. Jackie Kong with Blood Diner. The opportunities were slim. And then we closed out the 1980s with Mary Lambert's muscular adaptation of Stephen King's Pet Cemetery in 1989. These were trailblazing women who put a lie to that dusty canard that horror was men's territory. I mean, everybody really should have known better. Wasn't it 18-year-old Mary Shelley who wrote Frankenstein way back in 1818? Mary Lambert is with us today with a long list of nonstop accomplishments in film and television in her back pocket, and we'll talk with her about her inspirations and influences and challenges in Hollywood and beyond. Mary, thank you for joining us. You're so welcome. It's it's great to have a visit with you, Mick. Yeah, it's been way too long. We it's time to catch up. Mm-hmm. 
So Mary, you came from Helena, Arkansas, and you studied at the Rhode Island School of Design. So were, was your family artistic? I, I know your father was a farmer, was he not? That's true. Um, I was told once a long time ago by a fortune teller uh, that I was put down in the wrong nest. <laughs> I was about 16 or 17 when she told me that. And I, I think that might be true. I, she said I was put down in the in a uh, the wrong nest. I, I was put with uh, in a situation where I would be firmly anchored to the um, to reality and to the earth because otherwise I might just fly away. <laughs> float away maybe she said float um so so no it was uh, it was not a family of artists or or writers or actors or um but there is in the south where i grew up a very very strong tradition of uh storytelling and um and i think that was a huge influence on me well, were you always interested in the visual arts? Is that something you wanted to do from childhood? Were, were you a movie fan? From the time I was five years old, I wanted to be an artist. I thought I wanted to be a painter. I still am a painter. Yeah. Um, I, more uh, I've, In the last 10 years, I've been actively uh, pursuing my craft as a painter, uh, more so than I have since I was at uh, Rhode Island School of Design. And... Um, uh, in terms of the movies, yeah, uh, I mean, I'll, I, I, I went to the movies. I went to every movie that came to the small town I lived in, and you know, we, I don't want to, I don't want to tell everybody how old I am too many times, but there was you and no, I are the same age. <laughs> there was no, you know, there was very limited television um, uh, in the in the late fifties, early sixties, and. Uh, um, my family didn't even have a television until I was about six years old. I used to walk over to my grandmother's house to watch television, to watch um, Saturday morning television and, and to watch King Kong and the, the movie, the, the, the move that the most reliable movies on television at that time were old horror movies, King Kong, so was, and, uh, Frankenstein and Dracula. Right, all the universal package. Were mm -hmm. you always drawn to the darker stuff over the comedies and the dramas and the westerns and the war movies? I don't. That's a tough question because that's what there. That's what was there. That's what was interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I do. I did have to sneak out of the house to see the Roger Corman, Edgar Allan Poe movies at the local theater uh, because I, my mother, my um, who was constantly telling me I couldn't do things, but then she didn't really follow up on it. <laughs> she had too many other children, I think. Right. Well, uh, you have a younger sister who became a senator from Arkansas, Yes, she uh, Blanche was Lincoln. That's true. Blanche was much more law-abiding than I ever was. <laughs> <laughs> and she so, still is. And she was a wonderful senator. Wonderful senator. I love her so, very much. Were you the troublemaker in the family or you were the, the, the black sheep or the white sheep or shades uh, of gray? Well, I think, I think you could say I was the black sheep, but I, I was very careful not to get in trouble. I was really good at not getting into trouble. <laughs> uh, and, and I, uh, and I left Arkansas a pretty much for good when I was about 17 um, because I, I just, um, 
even though I love Arkansas and I go back there a lot and the, you know, the, the folklore and the landscape and my many friends and relatives, they are all a constant inspiration to my work. Um, there's so many people there that I love, but um, I just, I don't think there wasn't a big enough artistic community there for me. There wasn't a big enough creative, there wasn't any creative community at all except for, um, you know, one or two friends. Um, well, you're so st steeply rooted in <clears throat> Southern, Goth Southern Gothic storytelling. There is a real sense of, of the Gothic that is unique to the American South. That is, that is very true. That is very true. I had a great aunt who could tell you the story of the three little pigs and it would last for half an hour. And it gruesome details about <laughs> the houses coming down. I would hang on every word and then beg her to tell it to me all over again. So going to Rhode Island School of Design, mm -hmm. uh, was it with the intent of becoming a painter, a fine artist? Yes, it was with the intent of becoming a painter. But it was a bad time in history to become a painter because painting was dead. Um, and um, so... I just buried it in the pet mm. cemetery. Came back to life <laughs> last year. <laughs> so how do you go from an art student in Rhode Island to becoming one of the top music video creators of all time? Well, well I, I mean, was let's, let's talk about some of the artists that you've you've worked with, from Mick Jagger to most famously Madonna to, you know, just so many people, Queens, Rice, Eurythmics, Sting, the list goes on and on. So so how do you make that transition from fine artist to groundbreaking film director of music videos? Well, um, first of all, RISD didn't have a film department when I was there. They did. They started their film department the year, I think it was the year after I left. Um, but they did have film classes and animation classes. And I started, when I realized that painting was not, was at that time in, in history, you know, I, was just not the place for me to be. Um, I, I realized all the great painters from antiquity, I thought, well, wow, if these people were alive today, they'd be making films. You know, mm. telling stories, these huge cam the David and um the paintings in the in the Louvre, the, those painters would be um th those are huge stories. The coronation of Napoleon. I still remember standing in front of that painting and thinking, this this painting takes this it takes 15 or 20 minutes to even begin to look at this painting. There's all these things are happening. There's the little boys, there's the birds in the belfry, there's the 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 emperor, there's all these things, and you have to look at them and see how the people are related and what's going on. And there's an element of time here. And if this guy was alive today, he'd be making a film about this. He wouldn't be doing a painting. Um, and and I, and so that became my my desire at at RISD was to become a filmmaker. But I had no inkling about the film industry at all. They didn't teach anything about um, how to become a director. The, the, everything was centered towards being like a, you know, an avant-garde filmmaker, if, if anything. Um, I learned some real cuckoo stuff there. And um, uh, 
so when I moved to Los Angeles, I didn't really, I didn't really have a, a, a direction. I, I, I had this idea that I was going to make short films and people were going to buy them and play them on their, um, this on their laser disc players. I but remember I was, laser disc very well. But I was going to make short, very artistic films that included animation and, and, and that were nonlinear and, and more like paintings really. Um, and I had so many friends who were musicians um, at the time. And uh, then one day somebody walked in, I was, you know, doing uh, garbage mats for animation at a studio in uh, Hollywood. So and a so garbage mat is where you do a very basic blocking out of what's behind the image you want to see in the frame in a film. Yeah, yeah. or or block out something you don't want to see. I, right. Either way, it, de it depends on whether it's going to be used as an in-camera mat or whether it's going to be used, you know, on artwork or, or whatever. Um, uh, but you do it with an airbrush, and I was good with an airbrush. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, and, and someone brought up, music video one of the very first ones i ever saw was a ricky lee jones uh music video chucky's in love oh yeah uh, that was a great video and i was like I, when i saw it I thought, wow this is kind of like what i want to do you know this is what this is what i think i can do and um so it's visual <laughs> arts but not necessarily in a linear sense it's what would have been created by the great painters of antiquity had there been the technology to do so. It's sort of. Um, I mean, at the time I was at, I was working on a, a a short, a personal film, a short film, what I thought would be a short film that was very nonlinear. Um, and, uh, you know, about this girl that comes to Los Angeles and she um, it, it involved tar tarot cards. It was... Um, uh, and I ran out of money. I didn't have any money to finish it. I was using short ends from the, um, from the, <laughs> the effects house where I was working. Nobody knows what short ends are anymore either. <laughs> yeah, it's what's left over at the end of a reel uh, when people are shooting uh, on, on film. Yeah, and they don't, and they don't want to take a chance on running out of film. So uh, in the during the next take, so they just break it off, and and then there's like. 10 feet of film or 25 feet or sometimes 50 feet of film left on a reel and they sell them real cheap or give them away. Um, so anyway, uh, I, I uh, decided to take this um, footage that I had um, this film that was sort of unfinished and make it into a music video for some friends of mine. And I did. And and it, it was successful and people started hiring me. And I What just, was that first one? It was for Tom Tom Club. It was for my friends Tina Weymouth and Chris France at um and their band, the Tom Tom Club. And uh Which came out of uh, Talking Heads, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Have you seen the re-release of their, their movie? It's unbelievable. Not yet, but it's I like going to that, it's like going to that concert. Wow. Uh, I, I I I know I went to that concert twelve times, maybe fifteen, maybe twenty. <laughs> I can't even I don't even know how many times I went to see that concert back in the um back in the day. So anyway, um, I, I, you know, I, I, that, that video that they liked it at Warner Brothers, and they, and they started hiring me to do, um, to do music videos, and I, and I was good at it, you know, because I didn't have a lot of pre, I hadn't gone to film school, I didn't have a lot of preconceptions about how, about 
how narrative films are made. And so I just, you know, I just approached it like, uh, I, I approached each song, you know, I approached the emotional narrative uh, and I, I, I was good at it. I got along with the musicians. That's something I knew how to do. Uh, and and I, you I, basically I, approached it all with an open creative mind and you happened to be connected to what was one of the largest uh, recording companies in the world at Warner Brothers who had so many of the most important artists. That's true. So um, tell me some of the ones that really stand out in your memory. I mean, probably people know you most for your Madonna videos, but there was so much more than that. Well, I love the one I did for Sting. Oh, yeah. Bill Pope shot that video in black and white, and it was it was sort of an homage to um, um, Orphee, the Cocteau movie, which is one of my favorite. Um, well, I have so many favorite movies, but yeah it's such a great day. movie all the back backwards motion and the slow motion and mm -hmm. all of that was is so remarkable and fresh in that video and the and the story itself the myth myth of orpheus going to hell to to uh rescue his wife to rescue eurydice that that one i just felt like that was successful in so many ways and it the dancing in it i was really proud of the choreography and i i, I I think you know we used uh, the choreography to help tell the story, which which I think is an important um, element to, to successful choreography is is that it that it moved the story forward just as much as um, as a scene would. If it's just if you just stop the act, stop the story, and then a bunch of people dance, and then you pick up the story again, that's that's maybe that's fun to look at if you really like to watch dance. But it it's it doesn't um, to me it's not as successful as if the the dance doesn't moves the story forward, um, and um, that was one. And we then we went then the Janet Jackson videos where yeah. I used a lot of the same dancers. I started to use you know some of the same dancers and um, some of the same choreographers. Uh, Kenny. Um, Kenny Ortega. He, Ortega, yeah, who directed Hocus Pocus, which I wrote. Oh my God, that's one of that's one of my favorite movies, Nick. Uh, uh, I've watched that movie so many times. Uh, the yeah. chore, the choreography in that is so amazing. Just because another thing that I really believe about choreography is that it doesn't have to be. <clears throat> it's it's all it's 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 really more just about hitting the beats than yeah. it is about how extreme the moves are. I mean, with that scene where um, Bette Midler and um, Sarah, uh, they're, and, they're, and the three of them are walking, walking like that. Walking down the street. All it's doing is walking, but they're they're just doing it in the apps and their their body gestures and their the way they're doing it. That's just, that's just so amazing. I, well, I Kenny brought it. so much to it as a oh, choreographer. Yeah. I mean, he really... The film was not written as a musical and isn't a musical, but it is so musical and it's, it's choreographed as much as it is directed. And well, Kenny really knows how to tell a story with dance. Yeah. The, the opening sequence to um, The Descendants, where they sing, um, uh, uh, the, Show Me the Way to Be Bad. Uh, what is it? Um, something about bad. Uh, I'm not, I'm so bad. I don't remember, but it's, Show me the way to be wicked. Ah, yeah. That's that's yeah. it. 
so many ways to be wicked. That's so lyric. many ways, even so better. many ways to be wicked <laughs> in the whole high school dances. Oh my God. I love that. I love that. Um, that particular opening sequence. Uh, Music is so great to tell stories through mm-hmm. song and to marry visuals to song. Now it's hard to divorce visuals from music you know people listen to their song lists but they watch music as much as they listen to it i've i've only worked on one music video well i've worked on two i was one of the zombies in michael jackson's thriller (laughs) but i also directed michael in what was to become three years after i did my work on it ghosts michael jackson's ghosts and it's the most expensive video of all time but we shot for two weeks before we had to shut down when Michael's first scandal broke. So three years later, they finished it with with Stan Winston directing. But um, it's something I've always wanted to do. I was a singer in a band in my youth and and would love to have that opportunity, but somehow it never happened other than that one time with Michael. So I guess I started from the top. Yeah, I mean, where, where do you go from there, Mick? Yeah, to the gutter. So how lots, does one... lots of my friends are down there too. So <laughs> I'm happy to live in the gutter with us gutter snipes, the horror <laughs> crowd, you know, the ones with no respect. But um so musical imagery, tell me how you would work, how uh, your plans were. Did you did you do lookbooks? Did you get pictures from magazines or film clips or what that inspired you or was it entirely self-generated or did it work with the artist um well you know i think it's kind of different every time the 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 more that i would be able to or allowed to work with the artist you know the usually the better the video was um that that became more and more difficult as time went on because the the competition for the jobs would get bigger and the studios wouldn't let you talk to the um artists sometimes unless you oh. had a previous relationship with them and you just have to write concepts without any guidance at all um but you know they usually start with writing a concept back in the day um and sometimes that would include storyboards um but more often it would just be a written concept. And then it, once it was going forward, um, sometimes I would do drawings or, or even little paintings to show what I was trying to, um, to accomplish on, yeah, on pictures and, um, uh, but a, a formal lookbook. I don't think I ever did a formal lookbook. I hate, I hate them. <laughs> Yeah, I know what you mean. I agree. It seems like you're doing homework. Um, I mean, I the uh, I really enjoyed storyboarding. Um, and did you and do I, your own storyboards? Uh, my my storyboards are uh, are pretty abstract. I mean, I'm not a um, I, I don't have the drafting skills to be um, um, David the painter or to or to right. do storyboards that you can show a a studio executive or or an ad agency um but luckily one of my closest friends at the time and she's still one of my closest friends she just came to visit me she still lives in los angeles andrea dietrich 
has done storyboards for me all through my career. She's done them for every single movie that I've ever, I think every single movie I've ever directed uh, that wasn't a documentary. Um, so someday we're going to have a show and we're going to incorporate her storyboards and then we're going to do clips from the movies. And then, then we're going to, she's all, we're, I'm going to put my paintings in the show. It's going to be a great show. That sounds show. great. Doesn't that, that sounds great? Because yeah. um, it, the, the whole idea of visualization is something that really interests me, you know, because it, it more and more and more, it's really important in the, um, in the film world with, with visual effects. Right. It, it, it's a, it's a, it's a part of the process. It's, it's a the discussion at, at the, uh, the director's guild, you know, previous, like you, you, you have to come up with a still image. Um, and then you have to like, and then you, you know, then you see it move and you see how it's going to um, relate to the uh, environment, how the pieces of the in the environment, you know, that are digital are going to relate to the pieces of the environment that are um, not, you know, that are physical reality and, and how the animated characters or the digital enhancements on the physical characters are going to it's like but somewhere it starts in somebody's head, you know, right. Well, and the Start. great thing about music video is that you're not hampered by necessity to follow narrative mm -hmm. uh, and you're able to be surreal in addition to real and just go for visual flourish just for the sake of the emotional impact that it has. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess it's, you know, I haven't really directed any music videos in quite a while. It's it's become it's become a little bit corporatized, corporatized. Yeah. And so many of the of the really big, amazing videos, the start the the um artists direct them themselves, uh, or you know, with a with a really good DP or whatever. Um so I haven't I really haven't done one in a long time, but a lot of times I would start with a you know, just a couple of images, maybe found images or or drawings or something, and get the artist excited about those images and then, you know build the narrative around them and people trusted me to bring in the appropriate you know to embellish them in the in the appropriate way to build them out in the appropriate way there uh, and that's just you know that's what I would do well it's um, been years since you've done it would you consider doing music video today oh yeah I would love to um I would love to but I I wouldn't um I wouldn't go through this whole thing of writing of writing a concept and you know, without talking to the artist and without any that if trying to do it without any contact with the artist is just it's just a fool's errand, you know, because you have to it's it's so important. You know, you're not the the most important thing in a music video is 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 to make sure that you're not imposing a character on the performer. Right. Because you want to give them the room to be who they are. Well, and unless they want to be a character, like Madonna loved taking on a a, a character. There, there's there 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 are performing artists. There are um, who um, who like to do that. Yeah, Michael loved doing that. Yeah, Michael loved doing it. Um, you know, um, to a certain extent, like someone like Katy Perry does that. Um, um, and and there are other artists that just you have to either find the character that that sort of uh, embodies who they are, or you just have to 
you just have to like um let them be themselves you know and 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 tell the story around that because it's it's ultimately it's not about the story that you the director or anybody comes up with and it's it's not about the costumes it's not about the mise-en-scene it's about um showcasing that person that is has written and performed that song that has meaning for millions of people you know and you've got you've got to find the heart of it if you if you don't find the heart of that then um I don't, you don't do a very, you don't do a very good service. Um, and some of these musicians uh, transcend the limitations of music video or, or music itself, like Madonna going on with Desperately Seeking Susan and uh, Shanghai Express and uh, Dick Tracy and all kinds of movies. Yeah, can we talk about Evita? She was so wonderful. In and Evita especially, yeah. Um, and then Sting went on to a great acting career as well. So some of these musicians do transcend on the strength of their personality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but I think it's important that, that, that you respect, you know, who they are, uh, right. in, 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 and not try to, um, shove them into a, uh, character or a, or a narrative that that's, that's not meaningful to them. Um, the, I, so it's more than just their name value. It's who they are and protecting a personality that they possess and can exude on camera. Yeah, and allowing them to bring the, the you know, the power and the emotion to the song that they're singing um, in, in, a, in a way that reaches their audience. Um, people People often don't understand that directing is really a collaborative effort with all of these that you are the one who answers the questions and gives the guidance but there are so many other elements that are brought into it you transfer your visual ideas through the cinematographer through the choreographer through the performer let's talk about the transition of being a very successful music video into doing your first feature film siesta which is such a powerful and very stylish and very provocative movie. Um, it The preparation that music videos gave you for visual representation in a more than just standard kind of coverage is really evident in that movie. And it it pulses with, with a real heat. It, uh, it's gonna, they're gonna screen it at the Sit Just Film Festival. Uh, oh great one of my favorite festivals i love that festival i'm gonna go i'm I'm very excited to see it uh fantastic um so the question is how did uh well i mean siesta has a very very non-linear storyline yeah. um which is one of the things that attracted me to the script and um the soundtrack is miles davis so um the music is a huge huge part of it i mean there's you know um, it, it's about a, a woman who is um, uh, already dead and she's experiencing the last, um, she's experiencing this whole vision of things that might have happened. Um, kind of an occurrence uh, at Owl Creek Bridge in a way. A little bit. It's a little bit like that. She's experiencing and she's meeting people who are like 
you know, she meets people in this landscape that are that are angels or devils or or figments of her own imagination. It, it, it's you know, it's kind of up to the to your own um, interpretation as to uh, um, uh, Julian Sands is is one of those characters. Um, and yeah. uh, and what a wonderful man he was. Oh my God, I miss him so much. I, I, Me too. I, I was just devastated um, by his great actor and a really sweet human being. Oh, he was such an amazing human being. I mean, he was devilish, <laughs> very, <laughs> very mischievous, and capable of of uh, of any of the 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 craziest pranks you can imagine. <laughs> but at heart, he was just the um, he was such a spiritual. Uh, person and um anyway um so i had a really amazing cast of people ellen barkin all, was amazing ellen was amazing jody foster yep. martin sheen is in the movie grace mm -hmm. jones uh uh isabella rossellini and everybody was really up for the ride of of you know portraying characters that that didn't exist <laughs> Yeah. You know, except in the spirit world, but or that that um and and giving life to the to these you know to these scenes that that were taking place in in a in the nether world of Spain, uh, and we just we just went for it. Um, the the visual landscape of Spain, especially at that time, was really amazing because Franco had just just sort of stepped down wow. and there was this whole renaissance of you know people in the in the streets and clubs were opening and um uh but there was also a lot of stuff that was just kind of frozen in time for like had been frozen in time for like um 20 years you know in madrid the the buildings and the apartments and the houses and the 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 village where we shot a lot of it uh and um you know when you talk about i had an amazing production designer named john beard really talented he, he did uh he worked with martin scorsese on the last temptation of christ i believe he, he he's done some really big movies but um he was a production designer for siesta but one of the things that was really great was there was just stuff that was already there and he was really into like, um, just you know, he figuring it out with me. You know, what would what would, how can we film this bizarre garden? You know, how can we film this crazy uh, interior? Um, and then uh, for the sets that we built, you know, we we amplified that um, and and made them bigger than. Then the interior is big and strange and or small and weird. And uh, it was really fun to work with him. I had, yeah. he was, I, we had a real um, connection and the same sort of things excited us visually. So how did the opportunity manifest itself to be able to make the jump to your first feature film as director? Um. Well, um, it, it was it, it it took a while to get the movie together. We just kept signing on more and more actors, 
And um, oh, so you already this was your project. You were developing it, and then you were taking it to production company. We had a really hard time uh, raising the finances. Uh, totally Gary, independent film. Well, it was Zalman King and Gary Kerr first were the um, were the you know the producers, and then we then we signed on with Palace Films um, in uh, in London. Stephen and, Woolley, yeah. Steve Woolley and um and his uh partners Chris Brown and um one other partner whose name I can't I'm gonna have a, a minute saying Nick Powell, um right. and um uh we had financing and it would fall through we would have someone would sign on yeah I want to do it I'm not gonna tell you some of the people who gave me their word we're gonna put up a million and a half dollars and then three weeks later decided they weren't because I don't know why tell tales at this point in time. Yeah. Um, but it fell through and I was just sitting there in London, um, you know, and, and we'd even brought Ellen was even there and the money fell through again. We were just uh. staying at this hotel and trying, waiting to go to Spain because we were supposed to leave. And then finally, finally, the finally we, we had enough money to start production and we did it. And, and, you know, I had a lot of creative freedom um, because um, the, the money came from the, the money that we used for production came from a man named Julio Caro, who raised it independently. Um, and then we sold it to Lorimar. And then the next big step is working with a studio. Now, I remember meeting with Lindsay Duran at Paramount before I had ever directed a film about possibly directing Pet Cemetery, And mm -hmm. it was before they'd met with you. I read the script, which King himself had written, which I believe was his first one that he mm -hmm. adapted himself. And it's mm -hmm. a great script. And mm -hmm. I'm delighted that you got it. If, so, if I wasn't going to get it, I'm delighted that you did. Well, that's but, nice of you to say, Mick. I don't know if I could be that generous. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you can and are. But um, King has it in his deals that he has to have director approval and the like. He's such a big music fan. And I'm sure Siesta was his kind of movie. What was your first conversation with King, uh, either before or after getting the job? Well, it was before because I, I met with him. I had... Um, um, you know, I met with him at a coffee shop in, in Hollywood and, uh, um, and I, I, it was mostly about music, really. The conversation is now that I'm thinking about it. Um, I mean, I, I think there were two aspects to it. One was that he knew that, and I was very clear that I really loved the book that, I, you know, that, that the book had been important to me. And that I really loved the script, and that I and I think he knew and felt and believed me that I didn't want to change it. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't want to come in and you know fix what was wrong with it and 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 improve the uh, story and 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 make it into a film. You know, I, I just I wanted to take his. I wanted to make his story into a film. Uh, I I didn't want to make the concept of it into a film. I wanted to like be completely true to everything that was in the um in the book and in the script and I think the other thing was the music I think when he realized that I was actually really good friends with Dee Dee Ramone and we would definitely get 
<laughs> that and I said, don't no problem. Dee Dee will write a song for us, and Dee Dee did write a song for us. Yeah, and Pet Cemetery is great. A pretty damn good song. It's a great one. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to be buried in the pet cemetery. I don't want to live life again. <laughs> Poor Dee Dee. He had such a, oh, he had such a hard, hard life, and that, you know, there the 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 Ramones music is so great because it's so. It's so simple. It's almost stupid. Yeah, but it's, it's one, also two, at the most. There's three chords in a song. And and what a stoop when you think about it. What a stupid. Write a song for Pet Cemetery. Okay, I don't want to be buried in the Pet Cemetery. But you know what? It's so true. It's it's like it's so stupid. It's so simple, and it could not capture. It could not capture the spirit of the movie any better. Yeah. He, no more words are needed. He just, he, you know, he, he was amazing. Well, um, having worked with him so much, uh, I know that the further you get from what he has written, the shittier it gets. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you, after Pet Cemetery, three years later, you did Pet Cemetery 2, which he did not write and which was not based on uh, a book that he'd written, but in based on characters created by him. So tell me how how that circumstance was different because I assume he wasn't involved. No, he was not involved. Um, I don't think he wanted the movie to be made, honestly. Um, but uh, and Paramount had a very um, definite idea of how they wanted the sequel to go down. I mean, I wanted to and still want to, honestly, do a sequel about Ellie because she's the only one that lived. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I what mean, you... a, a true sequel would be about Ellie. Um, but that was still a talk about a time when women couldn't direct films. There was a long period of my career when, when not only were female-driven films just, you know, considered um, unmarketable, but especially young girls. I mean, it was one thing to have a, a boy as, as the lead in a film, but to have a girl, that was, that was just a big no, no. That, that I'll try to good. find one without, <laughs> <laughs> but tell me about those challenges that you had and the stupid things that I heard in meetings with executives. You must've heard much stupider ones than I did. I don't know if we want to go there. <laughs> we don't have to name names, but I do want to go there. <laughs> okay well i mean one of the stupid ones was like we can't but i already said it you know nobody we, we we won't be able to sell a movie with a uh young girl as the as the lead it, it, it you know it we had it has to be it um has to be a boy that was okay with me i love teenage boys i <laughs> love teenage boys i loved them since i was a teenage girl and um, <laughs> and you know they're they they don't their their brains aren't fully formed yet. They don't they make really strange judgments. They make really strange bad choices. And then they have to deal with the consequences. And you know, that's what Pet 2 was about. Was about like, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen to you if you're a teenage boy, a young an adolescent boy? Your mom can remarry, get married, your single mom can get married to a horrible, strict, 
guy who's the sheriff of the town and who's a, a, a disciplinarian and who hates you. No, that's not the worst thing that can happen. The worst <laughs> thing that can happen is you kill him, you bury him in the pet cemetery, and he comes back <laughs> as a crazy, um, you know, uh, murdering goon. So, you know, I thought that was funny and I loved that. <laughs> and I really wanted the, I really wanted this to be about the dark humor uh, 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 inherent in that situation. And I, you know, I was a lot of resistance to that dark humor. Um, uh, I wanted the soundtrack to just all be a, um, I, I, my initial idea for the soundtrack was just um, electric guitar, nothing but guitar. There would be no, mm. nothing but electric guitar feedback. Maybe you could throw the guitar at the wall for a while, but if you couldn't make the noise with an electric guitar, it would not be in the soundtrack. Um, and when they heard my first <laughs> soundtrack, oh my God, um, <laughs> everything flipped out. Um, plus, which I was pregnant with my son during the during the uh, the, the shoot and 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 post production. So, um, so that you know, that actually wasn't difficult. Uh, and until that, until right around that period in post production, when um, all of a sudden they hated the um, everyone at Paramount hated the soundtrack, um, and and I was eight and a half months pregnant, and that was oh, that wow. was. That was a difficult month. Um, but um, John Goldwyn at Paramount, he was very supportive of me when I told him I was pregnant. I thought I thought they might fire me, um, uh, but they didn't. And, and, and I, I'll never forget walking into his office and saying, John, I've got to tell you something. Um, this was in pre-production, obviously. And uh, well, he looked at me and said, what? I said, I'm pregnant. And he said, Mary. That's wonderful. I'm so <laughs> happy for you. Yay. And I've, 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 you know, how can you not love somebody? Like, how can you not love? It was so un, it was such an immediate reaction. It, it was just like, um, uh, it, it was an immediate reaction. Um, yeah. Well, how, how do you deal with a studio when they are putting the brakes on to what your vision is or your, your sound is for uh, the soundtrack of the movie. How do you deal with them without coming to loggerheads and becoming enemies? How do you do it? <laughs> uh, try and make them think it's their idea. <laughs> That's my way to do it. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, you know, you just want to stay in the room. Yeah. If you leave the room, then... Um, then nothing, none of your ideas are going to be put forward or, or executed. So you just have to stay in the room. Yeah, you got to know which fights are worth fighting and yep. which are worth making a compromise. Yeah, when you're going to lie down on the railroad tracks and when you're, you know, when you're going to, um, and, you know, sometimes, um, sometimes you, you make a compromise and, it ends it up being a movie that's more accessible yeah. um, to a larger audience. And um, that's everybody you know, wants a success. Everybody. Well, and you know, do you want your work to be seen? You know, yeah. do you want people to watch it or, or do you not want people to watch it? And it, it, the, I think the question is, when does it not become your work anymore? Yeah. 
when does it when is when is it when does it become a you know um direct written and directed by a committee um yeah and that's you know that's when you that's when you need to walk away um but i you know i i i appreciate um the opportunities that paramount gave me with those two movies and and i and i appreciate the you know the people that wanted to there that wanted to make a good movie and the support i got and and you know and i don't agree with i i did I, have you ever agreed with every note you've gotten from from <laughs> from, from, from the producers and the and the studio? And you know, some in some cases, I think I honestly think Pet Cemetery Two would have done better if they would have let me go uh, stronger on the dark humor and yeah. and, and the um, rocket and the uh, you know bass guitar soundtrack but um I'm you know I, I still I'm still really happy I, I was still happy with the movie and with Clancy's performance and yeah. Eddie and Eddie um uh Eddie was great uh so did you find okay. yourself did you find yourself being typed as a horror director after the success of Pet Cemetery? um yeah yeah, I did. Um, did you find it to be a negative, or did it, it was it opportunities for you? I was offered some movies I didn't really want to do. Mm-hmm. It wasn't because they were horror movies. It was because I just didn't like the um, I just didn't like the scripts. And you know, in retrospect, I probably should have done one or two of them. Um, but life goes on and you make your choices and you live with your choices and you keep moving forward as evidenced by your imdb page which is 88 projects long so i'm lucky i've been very lucky especially in the last few years to um to be working yeah well let's talk about a lot of the stuff in the last few years has been television for quite some time you've been doing episodic tv What's the difference between doing episodic TV and doing features? I've had my experiences, but I'd love to hear what yours are. I don't. I. Th- I don't think my experiences in episodic have been much different from your experiences in episodic. I mean, they they've been different, but the fact is, with episodic, unless you're a creator on the show, or you know, a producer director, or a writer director. Um, you have to you have to you have to come in and follow the the trail there's right, a pattern that's been set already the pattern is set the characters are have been you know developed the the look of the show is um is is there is the look of the show is something that everybody wants to keep continuity with you can bring flair to it you can have ideas within a within a framework and they love you if you come in with a with an idea that that fits in the framework that already exists but there's a framework that that has some pretty hard walls and um um you can't push too hard against those walls um i just directed um last year an uh episode for um the shining veil 
And I, it was so much fun because uh, I was just in a real sort of creative sync with everybody. You know, they, they, it, the humor is very dark. They, they liked my dark humor. I, I, I didn't have I, the, um, the visuals are really important. Um, it was a really, it was a really fun, great experience. I, what I'd really love to do would be get in at the beginning and be a creator on a show and have yeah. the opportunity to develop, to develop those characters over, over a series, over a, you know, uh, a season because um, films are limited in that you have to start, you have, I mean, some, you know, Tarantino does three hour films, but um, they're usually would they usually Honestly, I'm sorry, Quentin. They'd be a little better if he would shorten them. <laughs> They'd just be a little better if he would just if he would just edit them a little bit. But but I still sit through them. I sit through every minute, and sometimes I see them twice because they're brilliant. Yeah. However, uh, a three hour film is still shorter than a um you know a a, a twelve or fourteen episode uh, episode season or even a ten episode season. Right. Um, and you have, you have, you don't have the, for, for each hour of, uh, or half hour for that matter, usually half hours are, are, are not, um, are, are not an unfolding story. Usually half hours are like sitcoms or procedurals, but um, you have the opportunity. You're not expected to wrap this character up and leave us with, um, leave us with a satisfying resolution for, what the, for the rest of the life the, the ha- you don't have to do happily ever after and you don't have to do um everything's dead and gone and it's all over you you you, you leave the door open for the next thing that's going to happen and that's kind of that that's a, that's my style of storytelling really i mean i hate endings that are too um I like ambivalent endings to movies not wrapped I like, up with a tidy bow yeah yeah i like i like the idea that that the audience can project onto it and think, well, what's going to happen next? You know, how is she going to, how is she going to go back home after everything that's happened? You know, how is he going to, how is he going to, you know, how is he ever going to stay married to this woman? (laughs) Right. Going through the hills and valleys and not just one up and one down. How are they going to, um, you know, are they going to have children? Um, Is the kingdom going to prosper? I mean, whatever it is, you know, leave you with that, um, leave you with some, uh, some ambivalence about what the future might hold. Yeah, the only two series I've had produced have been anthology series where it's one full movie each hour. And but you never ever hire me for those, Nick. I not yet. To do one. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> okay. I've got stuff in the works. We're, I'll promise you one of those. All right. Uh, but they are not anthology. One of them is an anthology that Clive Barker and I are working on. But uh-huh. <laughs> another one I is. Love Clive, I love Clive Barker. Oh, I've always wanted to work with Clive Barker. As and, an artist and, and as a human. And, as, and you know what? He's a great painter. Great painter. I, His paintings he, are amazing. He painted the cover of my first book, and I have the original <laughs> artwork in my house. But I but anyway, I, I know you have to run quickly. What is the one unfulfilled dream that you have? Is it to create your own series? Yeah, I would say yes. 
I mean, I would like to do another movie from a script that I've written, you know, that's 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 a little more like Siesta, even though I didn't write Siesta, that where I really have uh, you know, the creative freedom to kind of go, but I, I got to do that. And oh, I, yeah. I, I, well, I you had the Dark Path Chronicles. I did the Dark Path Chronicles, and that was very much mine. Uh, but I've never really had the freedom on a on a series um to to be part of the creation be, be be one of the creators and that would be something that would be very very meaningful to me well mary lambert thank you so much for joining us here and going over your past and history there's a lot more to talk about and we'll do that in the future there's always tomorrow there is <laughs> this, is not a, this isn't a hard ending anything that's can right this is just anything an episode can <laughs> okay is... dear all it right was take really care. fun to visit with you bye-bye Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Postmortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.